0: Samsung released its biggest phone of the year and I'm finally ready to tell you most of what I think about it. It's our Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra review and spoiler alert this phone is not bad. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a look at the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra in our mostly full review. I use the term mostly full review because I'm holding off a definitive camera judgment until i ventured out into the world to actually take in some of the wonders that it has to offer. I'll mention this again during the review, but it has been the coldest, snowiest winter I can remember, and unless you want me to test this phone with photos of my living room... I need to get out there and do things that can push the camera to its limits. I'm going to give you an overview of the camera today, so don't worry, but later in the spring, I'm going to do a full analysis of the camera in a showdown versus the iPhone 12 Pro, and that'll be a thing to see. We're also taking a moment with an unusual Tech Yes segment in which we praise technology without, you know, trying to sell you something. And we'll get to all of that, but first, we have to dive into the news of the week. Now, before I get started with the news, I just wanted to mention that I had a chat with Miriam Jouar over on the Mobile Tech Podcast, which should be coming out this weekend, so you get a double dose of me. Isn't that exciting? Anyway, I'll be putting a page up on benefitofadoubt.com with a link to the show, so be sure to check that out and check out Miriam's podcast in general because she's super knowledgeable in this field, definitely more than me, but let's face it, I set a very low bar. So go check out and enjoy that show, but you know, not before you finish enjoying this show. So on with the news. If you're like me, you have a ton of extra photos in your library that you took because when you're trying to capture that perfect moment, it can take one or two or a dozen or okay, fine, sometimes 80 tries, leave me alone. The result is a Google Photos album that looks like a stop motion cartoon. Well, Canon wants to help out and they really want you to pay for their help. Canon is releasing an iPhone app called Photo Culling, which is a brutal sounding but not entirely inaccurate name for their app. Basically, the app will take your photo library and use AI to determine when you have multiples of the same shots and then pick out the best one it thinks you should keep. And then it'll help you delete the rest. Canon is offering Offering a three-day free trial, three whole days, Canon? Really? You're so generous. And then after that, the app costs $2.99 per month or $14.99 per year to maintain. The app will find the best photo out of many similar photos, or it'll give unique photo scores, it'll delete duplicates of blurry or low-quality photos, and most importantly, it doesn't delete anything until you tell it to. Is this handy? Sure. Is it something that I need to pay $3 a month for? No, And I have a ton of cloud storage with Google, OneDrive, and Apple, so between those three, I think my photos will be relatively safe, even if they're repetitive. And then it's just that much more that I get to enjoy the waterfall, or my dog, or the funny car I saw on the highway. Again, leave me alone. And to the surprise of no one, the TikTok WeChat bans have mysteriously gone away it seems that when you're not a douche canoe people on those platforms don't make fun of you and make you cry and run home to mommy and then you don't need to ban them actually the bans have been air quotes paused for the time being and that's because the guy who everyone made fun of on tiktok is now gone so there's no need to be all pissy anymore look folks the thing is bite had a great idea that just caught fire and yeah That's going to happen from time to time, regardless of where those companies are located. It's our job just to do better if we want to compete. Bans are not going to do a whole lot of good in this case because, as we learned from the TikTok saga, A, they're not that straightforward, especially when they involve multiple countries and jurisdictions, and B, they require a certain amount of focus, which our previous administration didn't exactly have an abundance of so for now tiktok is business as usual whatever that business is i mean seriously how does that company make money anyway so for now tiktok tiktok's on Facebook, the crappy company run by terrible people, is getting its panties in a twist over Apple's dominance in the smartphone arena, and more specifically, how that dominance is cutting into Facebook's money-printing machine. The two companies have been at odds with each other pretty much forever, but especially since Apple adopted its privacy model of business because... Facebook is anything but. The two companies have clashed over the years based on those diametrically opposed philosophies, and it seems Mark Zuckerberg takes a lot of Apple's attacks very personally. According to the Wall Street Journal, Zuckerberg has said in private meetings that he wants to, quote, inflict pain on Apple for its seeming affront on Facebook's data mining practices, which is kind of cute, actually. I'm not really sure how Zucky intends to inflict pain on Apple because... I can't really imagine any way that Facebook might retaliate here. What are they going to do? Pull their app from iOS? Yeah, good luck with that. But a funny side of the story to all this is that Google is actually probably worse for your privacy than Facebook is, and Apple has very close dealings with Google, according to the story, which says, quote, Apple also receives billions of dollars a year from Alphabet Inc.'s Google for making the search giant the default search engine on Apple's Safari browser. Google's profits are largely derived from the kind of data-gathering on users that Mr. Cook and other Apple leaders have sharply criticized Facebook for doing. So, yeah, for as much as Apple and Facebook hate each other, and I suspect that's largely a one-way road, by the way, but Apple isn't exactly innocent here. But whatever, it's hard to take sides when two billion-dollar companies are having a spat. This is really just another opportunity for me to dunk on Facebook, and I took it because I am who I am. And we're going to file this next story under company Dick Moves. LastPass has long had a premium tier and a free tier for its service. LastPass is a password manager who can generate and autofill passwords for you, and I've been a LastPass user since 2017 when I worked for Android Authority. However, this week, the company announced a slight change to its free tier. The change, and it's really barely worth mentioning, but the change is that going forward, you will only be able to use the free version of of LastPass on mobile or on desktop, but not both. Are you serious? Just what the living hell are you even talking about? There is no mobile and desktop anymore. What you do on your desktop goes to mobile and vice versa. They're just so intertwined. There's basically no distinction between them, but that's what LastPass is counting on. Basically, it's extorting its free user base into paying for a yearly subscription. The price? Oh, it's not terrible. It's only like $3 a month, but that's not the point. If I wanted to pay $3 a month, I would just have Canon sort out my photos for me. My main problem with this business model is it's basically not possible for anyone to maintain a separation like that. Even in Android Authority, where I worked mostly on a desktop computer, I still had to cross the mobile divide every once in a while. Saying that you can have a free service for just one or the other is like saying, Hey, here's a free car. Would you like a free car? Okay, great. Here's your free car. Oh, you want tires, too? Oh, well, that's going to cost you $40,000. It's a dick move based on a distinction that I firmly believe is not really a distinction anymore that anyone can make. So basically, LastPass has a free tier, which is essentially useless, just so that they can say, Hey, we have a free tier, and I'm sorry, but part of my French... Just fuck the fuck off, LastPass. Yes, I paid for a year, just because I'm so embedded into it that I need to pay for it just so I can test out other password managers and get everything moved over. Dick move, LastPass. Congratulations, you have surpassed GasBuddy on my shit list. I don't even think that that would be possible, but here I am. Am I ranting? I might be ranting. Sorry. Assholes. So this is a weird story. Remember two weeks ago when Carl Pei announced nothing and proceeded to tell us absolutely, you know, nothing about his company? At the time, I said, boy, this feels a lot like a sequel to Essential. And sure enough, this week, nothing bought Essential's trademarks... For some damn reason. And right now, the deal seems to be limited to Essentials trademarks and branding, such as it is. I mean, I can't imagine what nothing would have paid for Essentials branding because Essentials branding is basically worthless. I honestly hope Carl Pay paid nothing, as in no money, not the entirety of his company, but actual nothing for the trademarks because. What? Now, if a deal includes intellectual property and patents, maybe there's something there. But if not, if pay paid more than a buck and a half for the brand, then I definitely do not want to invest in nothing because apparently they're bad with money. There's really not much more to this story. We talked about it on the Mobile Tech Podcast, and even the loquacious Miriam Joir didn't have a lot to say here. I guess we're all just going to kind of wait until nothing does something, literally anything, before it's worth commenting on. Good luck, Nothing you <laughs> Apple made a splash last year with its new MacBook hardware and the M1 chip. Well, it seems Apple made a strong impression with malware makers as well because just a few months later, the first malware specifically designed for the M1 chip has surfaced. Of course, you're aware that M1 architecture is based on ARM and that has a different instruction set than a more traditional x86 system. The M1 MacBooks can run x86 programs with Rosetta 2, but apps need to be rewritten to work with M1 most efficiently. Well, that's just what the developer of GoSearch22 has done. GoSearch22 basically forces your search queries to be routed through a different default search engine, which is loaded with ads. It also seeks out and destroys other programs and extensions that might help remove it. So yeah, it's a nasty little bug and it's all for you, M1 MacBook owners. And yeah, That kind of sucks, but I guess it is a graduation of sorts for the M1 architecture. Congratulations, Apple! Your MacBooks have hit malware radars. You're officially legit. And speaking of congratulating Apple, we're going to go the other way with this one because Mac OS is no longer the world's second most popular desktop operating system. That honor now goes to Linux. I'm just kidding. That's never going to happen. That honor goes to Chrome OS now. And according to this article, that's not really Google taking away market share from Apple so much as it's Google taking away market share from Windows because Apple market share also grew by almost a full percentage point. People just be hating on Windows, bro, and I can hardly blame them. Yes, I am working on a Windows-based laptop now, and I'm reviewing a Windows-based tablet and computer laptop thingy, but Windows ain't all that, people. I still prefer macOS. Chrome OS is cute, but it's not really ready for prime time, at least for my job, that is. But whatever, there's not a new sheriff in town, but maybe a new deputy, and if the sheriff's not careful... Google Chrome is going to air Clapton his ass, so be careful, Sheriff. Your deputies are coming for you. Oppo filed a patent for a selfie camera that can shift from side to side on the top of your phone, the uses of which are... A little dubious right out of the gate. You might be able to use a camera like that for 3D image capture or panoramic selfies or otherwise get a lot of depth detail for better portrait mode selfies. And those are actually all very intriguing propositions. Regardless of what it'll be used for, I'm excited to see something like this just because it's different and it's another example of smartphone makers playing around with technology. It could be a fun thing could be a gimmick right now it's only a patent so it'll probably be a while before we see anything in a consumer phone if we ever do but for now it's fun to speculate You've probably heard about the general bad stuff going down in Texas. The state with more desert than Saudi Arabia hit a cold snap along with ice storms that ground the state to a halt. Making matters worse, most of the state lost power. So imagine being freezing and stuck at home because there isn't a salt truck within a thousand miles. And oh, by the way, now your electricity and heat are gone too and you haven't owned a winter coat since 1992. So yeah, it's pretty bad down there. Ars Technica took a deep dive into Texas's power problems and discovered it's actually kind of their own fault. Now, I don't want to place blame or victim shame here, but it's just kind of how it worked out. You see... Texas has been a fiercely independent state for its entire existence. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's only a state because it doesn't have enough nuclear weapons to declare itself a country. Well, as such, Texas maintains its own power grid that is independent from the U.S. power grid, and they do this mainly to avoid federal government oversight and regulation. Unfortunately, that means when their power grid fails they don't have a backup. Making things worse, when winter storms hit Texas about 10 years ago and caused largely the same problem, measures were put in place to make sure it would never happen again, but those measures couldn't be tested until it happened again, and it turns out some of those measures didn't work very well. That's basically the Reader's Digest version of what's going on down there, but hit up the link in the show notes to get the full story. And finally, I usually like to end our week of news on a high note, and this is a pretty high note. A designer whose name is almost certainly not pronounced, Henry Glogau, developed a skylight that provides free lighting and drinking water by distilling seawater. The solar desalinization skylight uses a combination of solar energy in a bowl shaped skylight to evaporate seawater into distilled drinking water. You can get water out at the tap at the bottom of the skylight. Then at night, this is the cool part, the residual brine leftover from the salt water is used to generate an electrical charge to power the light throughout the night. The design is cheap and practical, and it makes use of two abundant resources that could be a literal lifeline. In in places that are short on electricity, drinking water, or both, that's pretty awesome, and I love it when good design and simple technology solves the world's problems. Backend application API bugs attachment DevOps backend, backend frameworks backward object-oriented, natural language process, software blue text editor bookmark off boolean, web server. Welcome to. Yeah. yeah. So, I guess this could be called a Tech Yes yeah segment, but this isn't for something that you can buy. This is for something to be celebrated, because this week, NASA successfully landed its latest rover, Perseverance, onto the surface of Mars. It happened on Thursday, February 18th, just about 30 minutes after I concluded an appearance on Miriam Juarez's podcast, the Mobile Tech Podcast, Go check that out. Link in the show notes. Good timing. And at just before 3 o'clock p.m. Central Time, we got the call. Touchdown confirmed. We are safe on Mars. And I got to tell you, folks, chills. I've watched the landing and the ensuing celebration along with 2.1 million of my closest friends on the official NASA livestream, and can I just say that I'm personally tickled that 2.1 million other people were just as excited about this as I was. Now, for reference, I have also linked to Mark Rober's video in the show notes. Rober, who I've talked about before on this podcast, was an engineer for NASA for seven years prior to becoming a YouTube star. He's designed and worked on a number of components on the road so he has a good idea of what's going on. So I wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about what exactly happened, how it was accomplished, and what will come of it. Perseverance was launched from Earth last July, and it began its journey towards Mars at that time. This is a window that only opens once every two years when the Earth and Mars pass close to each other. On Thursday, Perseverance approached Mars atmosphere and before we get into how it went about landing, I should point out that at this distance, it takes roughly 12 minutes for commands and images to be relayed from the rover to NASA back here on Earth. So everything that was about to happen had to happen autonomously with zero human intervention. So first, Perseverance slammed into the Mars atmosphere at around 12,100 miles per hour and this is where the heat shield did its work. After it had slowed some, the spacecraft deployed a high-speed parachute to slow things down to about 200 miles an hour. As the rover got closer to the surface, descent-stage rockets fired, slowing the descent to roughly 2 miles per hour, but we're still not done. When the rover was about 50 feet above the Martian surface, a tether extended, dropping the rover down to the surface. Once the rover made contact with the surface of the planet, the tether was severed and the jetpack basically flew off to die somewhere as far away as possible from the rover. And there you have it, one rover on Mars. All those steps successfully completed, and well, I'm just gonna let you listen to the last minute of it. We're getting signals from MRO. UHF is good. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. At this point, the descent stage has flown away to a safe distance. Perseverance is continuing to transmit direct through Mars Orbiter to Earth. How can anyone hear those words and not just get a little choked up? I will never know. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance is safe on the surface of Mars. Goosebumps, and it's not just because I turned my heater down. So, now what? Well, Perseverance is going to begin looking for evidence of life on Mars by drilling core samples from what was once a river delta on the surface of a once-vibrant planet. It's going to drill down into the surface with a hollow drill bit and pull out samples and then place those samples into sealed tubes, which another rover will eventually retrieve and return back to Earth for analysis. And just how cool is that? But more than that, the most significant goals of perseverance are mechanical rather than scientific. First of all, NASA developed what amounts to a Mars drone, which lives beneath Perseverance. The rover will deploy the drone, and it will take several test flights to determine the viability of drone flights on Mars. The drone won't carry any scientific equipment. Right now, the main goal is just to find out if flight is even possible in the super-thin atmosphere. If it works, it'll be the first controlled flight on the surface of another planet. And how cool is that? I keep saying that, but... How cool is it? Also, Perseverance has what amounts to an oxygen box called MOXIE. This stands for Mars Oxygen ISRU Experiment, and of course ISRU stands for In-Situ Resource Utilization. And all that is a fancy way of saying that this thingamajig makes oxygen on Mars. Scientists developed a converter which will collect CO2 molecules from the Mars atmosphere and convert them to oxygen molecules, just like a tree or a plant would. The implications should be fairly obvious. Breathable air on Mars. Also, liquid oxygen could be used as fuel for a return trip from Mars. Both of those are pretty critical for a manned mission to Mars, and when you stop and think about the fact that, as Mark Rober puts it, the first human being to walk on Mars has already been born that's huge. People will walk on the surface of Mars in our lifetimes. Just take a moment to let that sink in. So yeah, that's pretty much tech. Yeah, if you ask me and I love it. I love that we're doing this. I love that NASA exists and I love that SpaceX exists and I love that space exploration in general exists. Thursday, February 18th was a very, very good day. So here's a fun question for you. How do you review a phone as monumental as the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra? Hell, how do you review a monumental phone like the iPhone 12 Pro? I've been reviewing gadgets and phones for the better part of a decade, and fun fact, I'm not sure I know how to review these phones. Don't get me wrong, I've reviewed flagships before, this is nothing new, but when it comes to Samsung, or Apple for that matter, it's not about flagship. It's about significance. Apple and Samsung make up a majority of sales for smartphones worldwide. Hell, they make up 90% of carrier phone sales by themselves. So when I ask that question, I'm not talking about a flagship. I'm talking about monumental phones, and that's just what we're here to do. This is my mostly full review of the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra. At the risk of sounding like a Samsung shill, I have to say that this year, Samsung really brought the sexy. I mean, just holy crap, what Samsung has done over the last few years has been nothing short of extraordinary. And yeah, marketing had a lot to do with it, no doubt. And yes, there are other good phones out there. Don't worry, I'm not making fun of your phone. But when you look at the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, which is the flagshipiest of flagship phones in recent memory, you just have to shake your head like... How is this even possible? Maybe I'm waxing a little bit too much poetic on this phone. I'll admit that's a possibility, but still, this is one hell of a phone, and it's almost too much phone to wrap my mind around, so let's just start wrapping, shall we? As always, we'll start with the hardware, and this phone is black, and I could go on for 30 seconds about how Samsung bragged about how black it was, but trust me folks, it's black. End of sentence. Let's not make anything more of it than we absolutely have to, shall we? In terms of design, this is a great-looking phone. It's not all that much different from last year, but it's enough different. The side rails mold into the camera housing, so it's all basically one piece. Yes, the camera bump is so huge it shows up on topographical maps, but it's almost forgivable with this design. It's elegant. Last year, the camera bump was all like, deal with it, bro, and this year it's like, sure, I'm obnoxious, but don't I look pretty? So yeah, it's basically the Christian Slater of camera bumps. There are two buttons on the right side, a volume rocker and power button, which doubles as a Bixby button for some stupid reason that I will never understand. There's a USB Type-C port on the bottom of the phone next to a single speaker grill. And this phone is amazingly huge. It has a 6.8-inch Dynamic AMOLED display at 120Hz, which some people like, but... I'm not some people. The display is Quad HD, which is a first in the 120Hz realm. Still not impressed. Anyway, we'll talk more about battery life later, but for the back half of my testing and probably forever going forward, I set the display to FHD Plus and 60Hz. I know, it's like taking a Ferrari out on a highway and doing 55. Sue me. On the inside we have a Snapdragon 888 processor. My review unit has 128GB of storage and twelve gigabytes of RAM, but in retrospect, I should have spent the extra fifty bucks for 256. Not that I plan to exceed 128, but seriously, it was fifty bucks, why not? Speaking of which, this debate is only a thing because Samsung left out the microSD card reader, which will piss off a very, very vocal minority, and trust me, I hear ya, but frankly it doesn't bother me. Nor does the lack of MST, which in my experience only worked about 60% of the time anyway, and is becoming more and more obsolete as time marches on. Speaking of marching on, let's march on. This phone is huge and heavy. If you do not like big phones, this is definitely not a phone for you. I don't particularly dislike big phones, but I've run into more than a few situations where I've been trying to handle this phone one-handed, and it's just ungainly. It comes with being a big phone, so I'll deal with it, but there you have it. I have two other notes about the hardware. The first is that this phone comes with S-Pen support. That is not something I tried because I don't have an S-Pen, nor do I particularly want one. It will only handle dumb S-Pen besides. Bluetooth features are not supported, so that kind of sucks anyway. Some people dig the S Pen, which is why I mention it. The back of this phone is also Gorilla Glass Victus with a matted finish that remarkably repels fingerprints like no other phone before it. Seriously, I don't know what black magic Samsung embedded into this glass, but it's just freaky how not a fingerprint magnet it is. Or it's just a common condemnation for literally every other phone I've had in the last four years or so. Regardless, well done, Samsung. The fingerprint sensor under the front screen is actually bordering on pretty good facial recognition works so fast that often by the time i hit the fingerprint sensor it's already unlocked the phone but when i need it it works pretty well and yes that hurt a little bit to say all told this is a great looking phone that is a chunk so don't be surprised by that but it's a fun phone and i kind of love it a little bit Moving on to software, there's very little to talk about here. It's One UI 3.1, which is not terribly dissimilar to One UI 3.0 that Samsung shipped last year. It's based on Android 11, which is great, and for the most part, UI elements appear down towards the bottom of the screen, which is where they should be. One thing I've never really been a fan of with Samsung's launcher is its app drawer mechanism. If you swipe up or down anywhere on the screen, you get the app drawer. Of course, you're probably aware on Android phones, if you swipe up from the bottom, and down from the top, those two actions actually do something very different. So, getting the app drawer can be an exercise in frustration. There's nothing you can do about it, but there it is. One lovely, wonderful, splendid change to Samsung's One UI that we saw comes in the form of the Google feed. It finally, finally allows you to put the Google feed off to the left panel of the home screen where it belongs. Yes, Queen! I've said it before and I'll say it again, that's around 50% of the news that I report to you comes from that Google feed. So, hells yeah, let's put it where it belongs. Now we just need to get Samsung to agree to use Gboard instead of their crappy keyboard. But, you know, baby steps. Samsung also adopted, and I'm not sure if this is new or not, but Samsung adopted the mechanism of easily adding multiple apps to folders in the most delightful way. Just open a folder and tap the plus symbol in the corner, then place check marks in every bubble you want to add, and blammo! They're added! It's so much better than phones I've recently used that require you to open the app drawer, drag the app out of the app drawer, and then drag it over the folder. Yeah, it's just gross. And finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the best part of the Samsung software experience smart switch and yes that heard a little bit to say as well smart switch is primarily for going from one samsung phone to another samsung phone but seriously it's as close to apple's new device setup as android has gotten so far and it's almost on the level of air quotes it just works it's really amazing and if you have a samsung phone right now and you buy an s21 use smart switch because it's awesome so let's move on to the camera, and normally I would get super into this examining this kind of photo and that kind of photo, but as I mentioned during my Sony Xperia 5 Mark II review, I've had this phone during the coldest, snowiest winter that I can remember. And if you want a bunch of photos showing you how amazing the white balance is on this camera, I've got oodles and oodles of photos for you. But if you want to know how good color reproduction is, or how action photos are, stuff like that... It's gonna have to wait. In the next few months, I plan to do a throwdown comparison between the iPhone 12 Pro and the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra. For that project, I'm gonna be getting into gory details and pixel peeping. For now, I'm just gonna give you a general overview of the camera module and the performance. So let's break down the camera module first. The Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra's camera module is stupid huge and it starts off with a 108 megapixel main sensor, a 10 megapixel 10X optical periscope zoom lens, a 10 megapixel 3x optical zoom lens and a 12 megapixel ultra-wide lens. There's a laser autofocus module that helps correct the focus issues that the S20 suffered from. The main camera shoots at 8K 24 frames per second or what you'll most likely use is 4K at 30 or 60 frames per second. The selfie camera lives in a punch hole on the front of the phone and that's a 40 megapixel sensor that also shoots at 4K at 30 or 60 frames per second. So How do the photos look? Well, let's just get this out of the way now. You can take this phone and shoot anything, up to 30x zoom, and it will come out looking very good, assuming it's the middle of a day. I'd stop short of saying excellent for the moment, but it's definitely, definitely social media good. For example, I have a 5-photo array on my Instagram showing a view of Navy Pier from across the lake at the Adler Planetarium that goes from ultra-wide to regular to 3x to 10x to 30x, and you can see the Navy Pier Ferris wheel appear and ultimately end up with pretty decent detail Now, 100x, still a gimmick, though moonshots can be phenomenal. And despite the story from Ray Wong at Input Mag that we talked about a couple weeks ago, I'm not 100% positive that there's not some trickery going on here, because I grabbed a handheld shot of the moon, and it looked every bit as great as Wong's. But just the other night, I tried a handheld shot of a crescent moon, and it came out looking like hot garbage. So if it's scene detection, Samsung needs to train its AI better to detect more than just a full moon. But if you have good light, shooting anything up to 30X is going to give you reliably good results. Full stop, end of sentence, end of thought in lower lighting conditions i would not use more than the 3x optical lens the 10x lens has a much smaller aperture so you lose basically everything in low light situations it's best to just stick with 3x if you have to zoom at all you'll get the best results from the main sensor and its pixel binning the selfie camera It's just kind of there. Especially in low light, there are some focus issues. It's almost like there's a film of Vaseline over the lens. But in good light, selfies are great. I need to take a few more low light selfies to get a good sense as to what performance is going to be like. And that'll happen, you know, when I can go outside again at night overall what i will say is that this is hands down the best camera system i have ever used on a phone it's just so versatile and the optical zoom is downright amazing if you have children especially children who regularly perform on stage this is the phone you should buy for capturing those moments i'll admit the small aperture on the 10x zoom gives me pause but i won't be able to accurately test that until my children are You know once again up on stage performing or until literally anyone is back up on any stage performing hashtag covid sucks but from what i've seen so far this camera is amazing and i'll say it again it is the best i have ever used moving on to performance again this phone is hardcore. My main tests for performance involve game playing and benchmarks, which are two of the roughest tasks you can ask a phone to do. I'm going to add a 4K video export test at some point in the not too distant future but I'm not quite there yet. What I can tell you is that the Snapdragon 888 is a baller performer and slaps any task I put to it smoothly and without a stutter. The Geekbench scores come out to 986 single core and 2476 multi-core. The single core score is great, topping out pretty much everything else. The multi-score core places it just before the OnePlus 8 and OnePlus 8 Pro and What's up with that? All the same, I can't complain about the performance. It really just does everything I need it to do. And honestly, when you get up into those kind of performance numbers, you're talking about milliseconds. So, yeah, the performance is great. Battery life, honestly, is just okay. There's a 5,000 milliamp hour battery in here, and that is gobbled up by the 120 hertz screen and QHD Plus resolution. Well, yeah. That's what you would expect. I suspect the reason it took so long to get a QHD display at 120 Hz out there was because you would need a 5,000 mAh battery just to power it. So when I had both of those options on, I never struggled to make it to bed, but there were times I'd hit the teens or the 20s in battery percentage left. Once I turned both of those options off, things got a lot more reasonable, sometimes going all night and into the next day before needing a top off. Of course, it helps that my house is littered with wireless charging pads, like everywhere, so it's really hard to gauge battery life since I'd sit down at my desk and plop my phone down into a charger and, whoops, I'm supposed to be testing the battery. Sorry. <laughs> all the same, the battery is good enough to last you a day, but if you're going to be out and about all day, you probably want to go down to FHD Plus at 60Hz. So where does that leave us? Well, frankly, this is the best phone that you can buy right now in 2021, young as the year may be. It's just phenomenal in all respects. It's also a $1,200 phone, if you can wrap your mind around that idea. $1,200, which is much better than the $1,400 last year. And all reports say that the Galaxy S21 series got a $200 price cut already on Amazon. So if you're thinking about getting one, now's a pretty good time, and I've... Hopefully included a link in the show notes, you know, just in case. Now, it's really easy to say, sure, go out and buy a $1,000 phone in the middle of a pandemic. Yep, 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 But what's really hard to say is that if you do that, you're going to be happy with your purchase. And here, I got to say, it's pretty easy to say that. If you forced me to spend $1,000 of my own money on either the iPhone 12 Pro or the Galaxy S21 Both of which, by the way, I have spent my own money on. (laughs) But anyway, if you gave me that choice, I'd get the Galaxy S21 Ultra, no question, hands down, easy as pie. It's it's honestly the best phone that money can buy right now. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to not thank Samsung for not sending over a review unit of the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, but I would like to thank T-Mobile for losing their freaking minds with an $800 trade-in deal. That's the reason that this review is possible. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I would like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.